Being a professional mathematician, Mason Porter talks about his career as a mathematician. So, so my name is Mason Porter. I have a very typical Oxford accent, as you can tell. I am a university lecturer, aka assistant professor, in the Mathematical Institute at University of Oxford. The main research group I'm in is the Oxford Center for Industrial and Applied Mathematics. I also have some affiliations to other research groups within mathematics, and I have an affiliation with the um, Oxford Complex Systems Group, which is known as CABDEN, and I won't, I won't bother with the acronym, because I study nonlinear and complex systems um, in applied mathematics. And I am a tutorial fellow in Somerville College, which is just across the street here in Oxford. Um, I have been in Oxford since October of 2007, so I'm in my fifth year as a faculty member, and before that I had all my education in the U.S. My background is in applied mathematics. In fact, all my degrees are in applied mathematics, but I, but I also have um, strong connections to, to theoretical physics. So somehow I'm in between applied math and theoretical physics. I don't usually prove theorems, but in, in my heart I'm a mathematician just in terms of how I view problems. I try to abstract problems. I try to model problems. I, I do try to use mathematical descriptions. It just doesn't come with the so-called traditional proving, proving theorems. The tradition is not actually that traditional. I work in a lot of different fields, and I, and I, and I, and I work with a lot of professionals from, from different fields. And when I work on a topic in some other field, so if I work on a topic in neuroscience, although I don't know all the neuroscience, I, I try to learn it and, you know, be like that. So I don't, I don't think I'm any different. Um, the academics in these fields all try to publish papers. We all try to improve the body of knowledge. So may, maybe there are some differences, but I don't really see them. Maybe one difference between mathematics and applied math, well, even if we get pure and applied mathematics, or really pure mathematics and everything else, is that in pure mathematics, I know more people in, that er in, in such an area who see value in difficulty for its own sake. Whereas all other forms of science, including, including applied mathematics, which is what I'm in, it's fine if it's difficult. We're not against that. But if it's easy, that doesn't make it not good. And I feel like in mathematics, some of my colleagues feel like if it's easy, that makes it not good. And I think that's a mistake. If it does what you want to do and it's easier, I would argue that that's better because then more people can use it. Does being an academic make me different from, say, mathematicians in industry? That I do think is different because some of the industrial pressures are different from, from academic pressures. My, my job is to produce new knowledge I mean, and also to educate students and so on. In industry, your job might include producing new knowledge, but it might be geared towards improving the product or getting the product out. And although those things can be correlated, the timescales are often different. You know, if, if your customer needs something in six months, well, then you might have to cut corners to get it there in six months. If I'm just supposed to produce new knowledge, although there are certainly certain, there can be certain time pressures, I can also just say, well, this is not ready. I don't feel this is ready. I'm going to spend more time on it. And that paints a picture that's maybe a bit more ideal than reality, but I think there's still more, it's still more like that on the academic side than it would be on the, on the professional side. In terms of teaching, I, I mean, as far as I can tell, there's, there's, there is mentoring in industry, but not, not as much formal classroom teaching, or in the case of Oxford, also tutorial teaching, as, as I have here. So what supports me in my professional life? For one thing, 
as with everybody else, I have friends who can keep me sane, or at least keep the remaining sanity from going away, and I think that's really important. One of the things about, about being an academic is that I, is I work really, really hard, and that this idea of this 40-hour work week is a myth. I work more than twice that. I do that because I work on things I really love, but I also need, I also need friends to make it possible to do that. Professionally, what supports me, I'm a member of a lot of professional societies, ranging from the American Mathematical Society and London Mathematical Society to the American Physical Society and the Institute for Social Network Analysts and Applications. I think I've, actually I've completely messed up that act with the title of that group. Anyway, it's a social networks group. So I have both connections on the applied side and on the more mathematical side and everything in between. I should also say I'm a member of, of SIAM. Some of, my, some of my colleagues will not be happy if I don't admit that. And so I, I get a lot from the society conferences and from, and from contacts I have through those societies. And then there's also some, some mentorship within Oxford. So there's a couple of, of older colleagues who I ask for advice at various times, especially navigating the Oxford system is very difficult. So instead of looking through our 1,500 or so page instructions that none of us probably ever read, I, I go and ask my colleagues, you know, how do you do this? And I think that's a pretty common thing, both on the academic side and on the professional side, that it's just easier to ask somebody who's been through it before to get some advice. Does membership of professional bodies give me validation? Nope, doesn't give me validation. Now, I, I realize that there's things called, that, that departments can be chartered and engineers can be certified or something, and that, that gives them a license to, to do things. I don't feel like I need a license to do anything. I'm not sure what chartering would would accomplish if if somebody wants to if somebody needs proof of my qualifications I can show them I can show them my degree and evidence that I got it I can show them the research that I did I mean my job is to produce new knowledge I can show them my papers and they can judge them but I just don't see what it would accomplish I don't think it's necessarily bad I just don't see what it would accomplish How do I disseminate my work the tradition the, the two traditional things three traditional things Amongst the ways I disseminate my work, sorry, now that I'm going in that direction, publishing papers, obviously, but there's multiple types of papers. There's, there's research papers, there's review articles. Um, I also like to do, actually, expository articles and, and even articles for magazines because I want a broader audience to do it. So if I, if I want to convince, say, mathematicians to, that a certain field is interesting, but that people, to, to actually convince people who are not already in that field, I might publish in the notices of the American Mathematical Society because it... it it reaches a much broader audience of mathematicians than, than say, a specific mathematics journal, which will, be, which will be read by people who are in the field or closely related. Additionally, I give talks at conferences, all sorts of ranges. So again, this, the, the range of conferences would actually have a really nice parallel with the range of societies. So I give talk at mathematics conferences and applied math conferences and physics conferences and social networks conferences, neuroscience conferences, you know, Lots of different ones, and, and more general ones than that, just even possibly general science conferences or undergrad research conferences so that undergrads know more, more about my stuff. And then I also give, of course, seminars at, at universities, and that's, that's, I guess, a more informal way of, of doing things, letting people know about papers and so on. And then I'm trying to do some outreach, which there's, there is dissemination along with it, but the purpose is, you know, so it disseminates it along the way, but the purpose is quite different. Quite in the U.S. sense, not in the U.K. sense of the word. And then some of my work, especially if it's in sort of these shinier journals, will occasionally get covered through either maybe interviews with podcasts, 
there's this mathematical moment stuff that the American Mathematical Society has done that's covered a couple of my papers, or there's an article in The Guardian about some of my stuff, you know, just there's articles in various newspapers about things. And that is something that maybe somebody else will decide to do, right? A, a reporter has to decide that this is interesting, but then that will disseminate work quite a bit. I'd actually love to see more mathematical articles in, in, in various things like The Guardian, the BBC, CNN, and so on, um, because usually it's going to be high-energy physics has a very impressive um, PR machine, uh, but I, I'd love to see more mathematics just being conveyed to regular people. For some reason, high-energy physicists are wonderful. You just get this idea that the frontier is always just searching for the Higgs boson and so on, even though that's not, in my opinion, the most interesting area of physics. I'm not sure how they got good, but the rest of us need to get better. Occasionally, I will see mathematics articles in these places. Occasionally, I've had them cover my stuff. It tends to be more on the applied side, just because I think it's easier to make it accessible to a wider audience. You know, there might be a really important theorem that's proven, but then if the entire theorem needs technical language to be appreciated, it becomes very difficult to convey it. Whereas applied topics, you can appeal to the, you know, I've, I've um, helped come up with a, a system to rank American football teams. And it's easy to see the appeal for a regular person because I don't have to mention the Perron Frobenius theorem, right? I don't have to mention that. I can mention ranking football teams, American football teams. Now, the thing that's interesting, though, is that the stuff with high-energy physics is as esoteric as mathematics, maybe more in many cases, yet for some reason the public eats it up. They're doing something right that we're not doing right, that it would be nice if we did do right. And, and that will be important not just because we want, we want to worry about leaky pipelines and so on, but it's actually important for funding as well, right? Because the politicians are going to read all these things in the paper and they're going to think, at least I think they're going to think, that, oh, I read this in the paper, therefore this is important, and the stuff that's not in the paper is not important, and, well, the world's not quite working that way. I can say a little bit about the public image of mathematicians. I'm less familiar with how it is in the UK than in the US, and I don't think it's quite the same, because I've noticed differences, not necessarily in the public image, but that might be reflected in the public image, so I'll try to remember to say those. There does tend to be a leaky pipeline in, in, in many things, in many situations. So in the US, when somebody asks me what I do, if I say I'm a mathematician, that tends to end the conversation. It tends to, there, there, you know, I've, I've often heard comments along the lines of, oh, well, I was never good at math. Oh, or I hated math. Or I was bad at geometry. And if, you, if you, you think about it, do a little bit of a thought experiment. What is the, if I said that I was a history professor, or if I studied literature, the analogous response would be, oh, I can't read. And no one would even think of saying that. Yet for mathematics, it's, it's, in the U.S., it's almost hip to not understand things. And you'll even see you know, politicians and other from, from public walks of life almost brag about being bad at mathematics. Again, you wouldn't say, I, wouldn't, I, I can't read. Now, I haven't seen that quite to the same extent in, in the U.K., so maybe, maybe things are better here, but I'm inclined to think they're not. You know, so there's this image that mathematics is hard, that it's only for social outcasts, the latter, I suppose, well, if you go to a professional meeting, I suppose there's some truth to the latter, to be honest. As far as whether it's hard, I don't think it's necessarily harder than other walks of life. It does have the impression of being esoteric, so it does go back to the PR. One thing I have noticed that's different in the UK and the US, it's a little bit related to the image of mathematicians. The leaky pipeline for women occurs at a different spot in the US than the UK. If you look at how many women are majoring 
a reading in the UK parlance mathematics in university, it does seem to not be as horrible a ratio as occurring in the US. I don't know if it's 50-50, but it's a higher percentage in the UK than the US, and not just random chance. I think it's substantially higher, and I'm sorry I don't have the numbers. So maybe the pipeline is not as leaky between high school and undergrad. It's already leaky between high school and undergrad in, in the US. In the UK, though, there is a leaky pipeline already starting between undergrad and grad school. So one thing I'm interested in finding out, and I have no idea why, is why is this particular leaky pipeline apparently occurring at one level higher? I guess there's, one, there's, there's, so there's one little thing that the UK might be doing slightly right. I kind of had a relatively straight and narrow path. I didn't always necessarily want to be a mathematician, although I decided that relatively early, but I did always want to be an, an not, maybe, not, maybe not even always an academic, but I mean, I knew at like age 10 I wanted to get a PhD. I thought I was going to go into computer graphics and, and do video games. Of course, I didn't know at the time that actually computer graphics requires an intense amount of mathematics. I just wanted, I just thought that was a good way to get into video games, and I ended up deciding that I liked applied mathematics better than, better than computer science. That being said, a lot of my research actually touches quite a bit on theoretical computer science, so at some level I am doing some things related to the original stuff. I didn't have obstacles that, are, that, are, that were unusual in any way. The only obstacles I had is, oh, well, you know, I'm frustrated during my PhD. Am I going to do well in this course? But in the scheme of things, those are small obstacles, right? I, I mean, these obstacles are there, and a lot of people have them, but I had a pretty straight and narrow path, which is unusual, I should say. It's, un it's, it's not, I don't know if there's the impression that most of us have a straight and narrow path. That's just not true. And there's a lot of very successful, not just mathematicians, but all sorts of scholars where, you know, you, if you talk to them now, you might not realize that they had huge obstacles, but most of them did. Whether it was having to raise a family while they were trying to, trying to finish things up, you know, whether it was something else. You know, I've had things in my life that have been issues, you know, and, and they were difficult, but none of them were ever impeding my academic path in any way. I mean, you could argue that my academic path is a way to escape from other issues in some sense, because at the end of the day, you know, whether or not I can solve a mathematical problem is, is, is pretty trivial in the scheme of life, right? I never felt I needed role models. I mean, there are certainly scientists who I look up to for various ways. Either they're really good at exposition, or they're really good at research, or they're, they're really good at mentoring. And I, and I, know, I know various people who are, who are good at subsets or maybe all of these things, but none of these are ones who helped me get through. They are ones who have inspired me to do outreach, to value outreach, or inspired me to value exposition. So they're role models in that sense, but there, there's no one I looked at and said, oh, I see this person and therefore I'm going to try to be, you know, a mathematician. I decided to be a mathematician because I like mathematics. That said, I think we should try to develop role models in the sense of, okay, people are already doing some very brilliant things in all sorts of facets. But to go back to the leaky pipeline issue, I think having role models can help with a leaky pipeline. To, and, and some societies are trying to do this, right? There's a society for women in mathematics who, who are trying to do various things, and they, they sponsor a mathematical essay contest where, where you're supposed to get essays on women mathematicians. And, and clearly they're trying to present people as role models because that will hopefully help with the leaky pipeline. And I think it can. I think there are more people who can become mathematicians and scientists through a role model mechanism, even though I didn't myself become one that way. 
This recording was created for the project Being a Professional Mathematician, supported by the MSOR Network, the Institute of Mathematics and its Applications, and the Universities of Greenwich and Birmingham, as part of the National HE STEM programme. It is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike Licence.